For wine lovers, we have some bad news. Much of the research that suggests a health benefit in drinking red wine has been heavily contested and disproven. But unfortunately, that wasn't actually the bad news. There's more that isn't public knowledge. There's a deeper layer of health and alcohol consumption that has been largely underspoken and ignored. After smoking and obesity, alcohol consumption is actually the largest preventable risk factor for cancer. This seems like huge news, but why have we not heard about this? In this discussion, we break the silence. Joining us on the sidelines today to talk about alcohol as a carcinogen is Dr. Tim Stockwood, a scientist and the former director of the Canadian Institute of Substance Use Research. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Stockwood. Hello, pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. And the topic we have today is, I think, of utmost importance because personally, this is not something I've really come across the news. This is not really something I've come across in my own education. And I'm willing to bet that there's a lot of people within the sciences who might not actually even know about alcohol and its role as a carcinogen. But we want to start very simple. So do you mind just explaining what a carcinogen is first? Yes, essentially a carcinogen is something that can cause cancer, usually in reference to humans. So I think we might focus our discussions around health effects of alcohol with, with humans. But of course, the carcinogen can cause cancers in other, other species. Right. So this is the big question then, how does alcohol act as a carcinogen? How, how does drinking or consumption of alcohol uh, increase the risk of getting cancer? Okay, so there's various cancers um, that alcohol is known to cause. And the ones that are easiest to explain are to do with the digestive system. So we drink alcohol, it goes in our mouth, down our throat, through the digestive system, and if you pardon me saying out the other end. And at each point, in that little journey, human tissue comes into contact, first of all, with ethanol, which is the substance in alcohol, that's the scientific name for it. And that quickly gets turned into this really nasty thing called acetaldehyde. It sounds like something acidic and corrosive, which it is. Right. And that's highly carcinogenic. So the first thing when we metabolize alcohol in our digestive system is this carcinogenic product. And as it comes into contact with our mouth, with our throat, with the human tissue throat, and out, as I said, out the other end, there's cancers. So the World Health Organization brought this most dramatically to our attention um, in the 1990s with a, with a report which essentially said that um, alcohol can cause six types of cancer. There's cancer of the mouth, the throat, the esophagus, other cancers, and then subsequently breast cancer has been identified by the World Health Organization in its subsequent reports as a cause. Now, the process by which alcohol causes breast cancer is different, and it's to do with their, their various theories. It's quite well known what the mechanisms are, but they're more hormonal. And in a similar way, there's theories that alcohol can cause prostate cancer. That has not yet been recognized by the World Health Organization. And in fact, there's a lot of cancers that alcohol is associated with, so that the more you drink, the higher your risk of getting these cancers. It hasn't yet been clarified that it's causal. So for at least seven major cancers, alcohol has been um, identified as a cause and is therefore a carcinogen. And that's quite shocking because you, you say the original big report comes from 1990, which is 
quite a long time ago. And it, and it just feels like from more of a public perspective, not a lot has been done to kind of address this issue. And the, the public simply just doesn't have the information that they need on this issue. So I think a good place to start is also just speaking about how much alcohol consumption even plays a risk factor in getting cancer. So is it that if you drink excessively that you're going to have higher risk of cancer, or is it even one drink, two drinks, or shorter durations of drinking that will increase your risk? That's a very good question. And the answer appears it's kind of logical. If you imagine what I just said about alcohol turning into acetaldehyde, this nasty corrosive thing. So I should have said once that happens, you ingest alcohol, there's burning corrosion of some human tissue, it heals itself. So you repeat, you drink, corrode, heal, drink, corrode, heal. But the DNA, when it replicates in our bodies, when we heal ourselves, doesn't always do it perfectly. And that's how cancers develop, as it's a failure for the human, the human body to replicate itself precisely and, and, and as it should. And that's when a tumor can develop. So the extent to which alcohol causes that is to do with the amount you drink. So you imagine the number of times that happens and then the dose. So the more you drink on a day and the more days you drink just adds up. Right. There's likely, we don't quite know the extent of it, it's likely to be like what you might call an increasing risk. So it's not like a straight line that, you know, 10 drinks is 10 times more risky than one drink. It might be 100 times. All we know, there's no safe level. Um, and it's very clear that you can detect an increase in the risk of cancers, some cancers at one drink a day. That's been confirmed in many, many studies, particularly with breast cancer. We've got such good evidence now. But let's get this in perspective. People might understand the risk of tobacco. You compare alcohol and tobacco. So a nice study looked at how you compare the cancer risk of 10 cigarettes in a week. And people might like to guess and imagine, well, how many drinks in a week would be the same cancer risk as 10 cigarettes? We all know tobacco is really bad, really bad carcinogen. For women, it's 10 drinks. So one drink, one tobacco cigarette, same cancer risk over time. Of course, you have to add that up. For men, they didn't in the study include prostate cancer as a proven case, but it could be. They may not be any safer, but when you crunch the numbers, it would be about, they'd need about 20 drinks to get the same risk as 10 cigarettes. So, so it's how much you actually drink, how you spread it over time. And, you know, there's not really a safe level. Wow, that's quite shocking to to hear that there's such a high correlation, like not high correlation, but at least similarity, I guess is a better way to put it, between cancer risk of smoking or tobacco or cigarettes and just drinking alcohol. Uh, that's definitely something I haven't thought about. And I, I think that's a very good way to at least have a much clearer comparison. And if I've got this correctly, then every single drink increases your risk. And maybe one drink in your lifetime is a very, very low risk. Uh, but, you know, every single time you drink alcohol, that means you're going to get acetaldehyde in your body. And that means that that's a risk of the repair system not working. You know, if you had one drink a week, that'd be such a tiny risk. Right. But you could probably measure it if you had 10 million people and you followed them up over time. Those drinking one drink a week, you might be able to measure a tiny increase in risk of some cancers. So why do you think this topic is so underspoken? Because a lot of individuals talk about ways to reduce smoking and you know why all these other cancer risks need to be dealt with. Uh, but I've never actually ever heard of a program that's specifically targeting alcohol consumption 
in relation to cancer risk. So what, what do you think uh, are some factors that go to this topic being so underspoken? Yeah, there's, there's many. It's, um, it's quite complex. Well, one is that um, it's fairly recent that international bodies, I mean, in the, you know, the scope of human history, it's probably 33, 34 years since World Health Organization reviewed literature. There are lots of clues out there before that and people ringing the alarm bell. And it's very clear that people with very heavy drinking patterns are much higher risks of some cancers. So people have suspected this for a long time. But the World Health Organization grasping this, writing a report and determining it was, was a milestone. Now, why we haven't really looked at it before is because we don't want to know is partly. I mean, let's put it simply. Um, we think of we, so many of us have a stake in drinking and enjoying alcohol. And so many people have a financial interest in its production and its sale and marketing. I mean, it's a billion, 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 trillion dollar industry worldwide. Governments collect huge amounts of revenues from it. So, you know, we've all, we really do not want to hear, especially for something that's our favorite recreational drug, actually in most countries, not all countries, most developed countries, the great majority of people drink and it's their most usual substance used to alter mood, used while socializing. You can use alcohol or substances for almost any activity um, to have some desired effect. So it's useful. And we really, particularly when we're relaxing and socializing, don't want to discuss or think about that what we're doing is harming our health. Then layer on that the alcohol industry in its various forms and guises is lobbies very, very hard to stop governments doing anything about this. And I've seen this firsthand as I was party to a study in the Yukon Territory of Canada, where we persuaded the Yukon government as an experiment funded by Health Canada, a federal department of health, to put warning cancer warning labels and other health information on alcohol containers. After 29 days of that running, and we had about 50,000 alcohol containers going out of the White Horse liquor store with cancer warnings. The industry woke up, discovered what was happening, threatened legal action, and it was stopped abruptly in its tracks. Huge, difficult to get. And there's been like five attempts before for private members' bills, they're called, to put warning labels on alcohol. They've all been struck down. And one was in my first meeting ever since I came to Canada in 2004. I was at a meeting in the you know, the Parliament in, in, in Ottawa, the Standing Committee on Health asked me to present as to why they should put warning labels on. And they'd had a long process. And within 20 minutes of my giving what I thought were very reasoned arguments, they decided they wouldn't, they voted against it. The chair came up to me and said, it's a disgrace. Almost every one of these people in this committee have got alcohol industry groups pressurizing them in their ridings. Right. And no one is looking out for the interests of the citizen and uh, their, their right to know as consumer. Right. And that would be perhaps one of the most compelling reasons why this is so important, because it's almost like information is being withheld because of all this lobbying and political action uh, against trying to you know, add these warning labels or at least make this more public information. I've, I've often been vilified for talking about the harms of alcohol. A lot of people don't want to hear it. But on this issue, of giving scientific facts out to 
consumers, people out there. It's not just consumers, it's about the people they love and live with a concern with. But to deny that information has made so many people angry. I've never had such positive responses when, from the media around what happened in the Yukon. It became an international news story and our warning labels were seen all over the world. So these little warning labels live on, but the public reaction on the issue they don't like being told what to do about it. They don't like being told to not drink. They don't like to be told to drink less. Of course. They don't want to be warned and have fingers wagged. But if somebody's stopping them knowing stuff, they get furious. And I think partly the Yukon study may have lit a fuse along with other things that will eventually lead to warning labels in Canada and maybe other countries as well. The World Health Organization is hosting a meeting in two weeks in Copenhagen about designing warning labels and I'll be attending that with um, one of my colleagues that did the Yukon study with me. When we look at tobacco, for example, and, and cigarette sales, uh, the tobacco industry was also massive. There was a lot of lobbying done. Uh, and eventually they were able to get, or at least the health organizations and uh, other political bodies were able to get those warning labels on you know, cigarette boxes. Uh, to say that, you know, smoking causes cancer. So even though that industry seemed insurmountable, very difficult to kind of defeat in that sense, perhaps the same could be done for alcohol and the alcohol industry as well. So my question around this was, what do you, what more do you think it'll take for us to kind of get over that last hurdle, despite the fact that there are people who are interested? Yeah, I think it's good to get it in a big perspective here. Um, it often does take time for scientific knowledge to be translated into changed policy. We all have our habits and the way we live and society is structured in very particular ways for a reason and it meets all sorts of interests and needs and to change is always difficult. It took 150 years for the discovery that not having citrus fruits could cause scurvy among sailors. Tobacco, I think the first studies I met, the guy, Sir Richard Dole, who did the first studies to determine the risk of tobacco for lung cancer, I'm pretty sure they were late 50s. And it took at least 20 years for us to know about this, to become a big deal and for the campaigns to start. So I guess maybe we're on track. Um, there was a time when 70% of men in developed countries like Canada, USA, smoked cigarettes. And now it's like 15% or something like that. So, and though we look at the rates, one of the things that the Canadian Institute of Substance Use does, we monitor levels of use of lots of different substances and harms. Tobacco is continuing to go down. Alcohol is accelerating and going up. COVID didn't help. Um, there's a lot of deregulation to not punish businesses, to make it easier for alcohol retailers to make money and actually there are ways of doing that without, you know, worsening public health issues. And other than the study that was done in Yukon, specifically with the warning labels added to the alcohol bottles, what kinds of other policies or programs do you think could get some action on reducing alcohol consumption in Canada? Right. I'll just mention um, before going fully into your question is that it's hard to get the very effective policies. They're mainly about pricing, um, availability, 
marketing restrictions and so on. These are really tough things to get to happen, but partly because we're not motivated to do it as a society, because about 70% of people don't know alcohol is a carcinogen, and probably most don't want to know that. And so symbolically, if there's no warning about that, people must think, oh, it can't be that important because surely the government warn us, they're there to protect us, it's our right to know, but it can't be such a big deal. So I think the warning label issue is like a circuit breaker, that once those warning labels go on, it's going to utterly change our attitudes and behavior. So in the Yukon, we did measure a 7% reduction in alcohol consumption per adult alcohol consumption compared with the Northwest Territories, which didn't have those labels or the other parts of the Yukon. And we also found increased support for people who saw the cancer warning messages for pricing policies of all the things that have the most benefits are to make to avoid cheap alcohol. I mean, it's not just necessarily putting an increase in price or bigger tax on all kinds of alcohol. It's the cheapest because we've got world-class cheap alcohol. People often don't believe that, but you go around a liquor store with a pocket calculator and do the maths about how many standard drinks are in a bottle of sherry that's 23% and it's probably retailing for, I don't know, nine bucks or something. I haven't got the recent prices. But it's, you can find alcohol in Canada for less than a dollar per standard drink. And what they've done in Scotland, they have a minimum, they have a floor price of 50 pence, which is about, I think, a dollar 20 here in current exchange rate, maybe a bit higher. In the Australia's followed suit, and it's actually Canadian research that contributed to the idea of minimum pricing and has been implemented in Scotland. It showed reductions in deaths. Anyway, support for that sort of policy increased in the Yukon once people saw the warning labels. So it's something we need all of these things done. But starting with warning labels is a good place to start, because why would we care if we don't know about the harms? I think it's very interesting to speak about, you know, the citizen's right to know and you know, having the correct information because within alcohol, there's been so many studies that say, you know, have a glass of red wine every night and that's going to be good for your health as well. That is a tricky one though, this, this thing about alcohol and health benefits, because it's very easy to do a study that makes it look that that's the case. You just get a group of people, follow them up for 10 years, look at their drinking at the beginning and see, you'll find that people currently not drinking are going to die at a higher rate or get ill at a quicker rate than people who are moderate drinkers. What's not taken account of is the fact that the people who become abstainers, particularly middle age and older age, have given up alcohol because they're frail or they're on medication, they've got other risk factors. So they make the moderate drinkers look good. And these studies have hardly any study. There's thousands of these studies finding this, what they call a J-shaped curve. So you imagine a J-shape, it dips, the dip is, you know, moderate drinkers getting benefits, and then the more they drink, they lose the benefits and actually get risk. But that's a false comparison between people called abstainers or current abstainers who, you know, are biased towards being unhealthy. And then you've got this selected group of people who've survived all these other problems, and they're a selected group that are very healthy, and that gets more extreme. We've done a study in which we started with younger people, young adults that were followed up to older age when they could get heart disease. You get a straight line. The risk, there's no dip. There's no improvement for moderate drinkers. So that is another obstacle to getting warning labels, because I remember trying to advise the UK government to introduce health warning labels, and they said, well, it's confusing because 
alcohol in low doses protects you. I mean, these are the people making the policies. So we could be giving a mixed message. So as one final kind of idea, there's a lot of, and, and we're already talking about opposition to, you know, alcohol consumption, warning labels and stuff like that. A lot of people say that as long as people understand the risks, alcohol consumption is a personal choice. So what do you think about the stance? And to what extent do you think the government has a responsibility to step in on these kinds of public health issues? I, I'm a great believer in democracy. So I think the place to start here is people making informed decisions for their own health, but also making informed contributions to party political agendas. So policymakers need to be responsive to the needs and wishes of their citizens. I think they have a duty to connect the dots and make sure the information gets out there, but then to look at what can be done to reduce risks, but not to go beyond what is acceptable to the community. And when you poll people um, about what kind of policies they support, where they believe that alcohol has these cancer risks, they're way more likely to support effective policies like minimum unit pricing, these floor pricing or increased taxation. These are among the most effective. So we need to not step too far because we none of us want to live in a police state where people make decisions for our benefit without consulting us i think we all need to be informed and engaged in the pro policy making process you know there's a lot of vulnerable people there's young people people with mental health difficulties and people in, who are homeless not having supports who are really vulnerable um, and have short life expectancies because of misuse of alcohol they need protection they need treatment, but we also need policies so that fewer people enter into that vulnerability. Thank you so much for your insights. This is definitely an issue that requires a lot more awareness, a lot more publicity, and hopefully this conversation was a step in the right direction. Well, thank you for asking those nice questions and for your interest in the topic. And thank you again for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about public health policy or any of the other topics we've talked about on the show, visit us on Instagram or TikTok at sci for everyone and on our website at www.scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Miriam Ben Musa, Sam Marchetti, and Connor Nelson, and edited by Jay Jarantonis.